Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Sophia Ramos. In this episode, Philip Hollingsworth speaks with Associate Professor in History and Director of the Center for the Study of the American South, Melinda Maynard Lowry. In their conversation, Professor Lowry discusses her new book, The Lumbee Indians, An American Struggle, which covers the history of the Eastern North Carolinian tribe over the past three centuries. She also discusses her involvement in the 2017 music documentary, Rumble, The Indians Who Rock the World. I was watching a documentary, it was called like Rumble, and then yeah. you were in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh, hey. Yeah. But yeah, could you talk about that interview at all or how you got approached for that, um, how that worked? So Rumble came to me from a group of Canadian documentary filmmakers who had done a film, I think, called Real Engine. Yeah, I've, uh, I saw that like in a while ago. A number yeah. of years ago. Yeah. There are other documentary work. I mean, Canada is a different world than U.S. So Canada has government funds for documentary work yeah. that's made about Native people. And this is a particular production team that had an interest in U.S. and had leveraged the Canadian system sufficiently to use a, a number of Canadian resources uh-huh. to make films that help tell stories on both sides of that border, indigenous stories, but in particular, Rumble, we you know, was a heavily American story. I mean, right. their interest was American pop music and rock in particular, and the various ways in which Native people can be traced to having important influences on those genres. So John Troutman, who was also a grad school colleague of mine, I met him in I think the year 2000 or 2001, does histories of American Indian music and culture. And so he met them and he was aware of a long-suffering project I've worked on about the relationship between Native music and blues Oh yeah, in Mississippi. Yeah. I really enjoyed that section. Of it the, was right. Because I had like... Nobody really thought, asked that yeah. question. And so it was really... John, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, sure. I mean, one of the things I'm exploring, and I've been exploring it for a lot of years, but it still feels like I'm in the early stages of even understanding what the right questions are. One of the things I'm exploring is how what we now think of as American blues, specifically Mississippi Delta blues, has emerged from a kind of cultural cauldron. People have well documented the relationship of that music to the musical traditions of enslaved people in Mississippi and elsewhere, particularly like field haulers, spirituals, um, other kinds of things that emerge from the experience of enslavement. Mm -hmm. They've also documented the similarities between African forms of music and American blues as practiced by the kind of earliest blues musicians. What's not part of the cultural cauldron conversation yet is Native people. And when we connect historically the relationship between the removal of Native people from the Southeast and the expansion of slavery in the Southeast, you also then have to ask the question, what has been the relationship between Native and African people? And many scholars have done work on this for a, a long, long time. A lot of my work in this area boils down to what does what does those relationships say about Native identity? But in this case, because I have such a strong interest in music and I, I love it, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to write about 
the relationship between musical forms and how mm. they can how we can begin to I think reintroduce native people into the story of American music and um, John Troutman has done work in this area that film Rumble has been an important contributor to some of these stories yeah um, but I was focused especially on the story of Charlie Patton who was known as, as the king of the Delta Blues and Patton during his lifetime and after was remembered by other musicians as having native heritage mm -hmm. um, it was kind of a common part of the oral tradition about Patton is that he had native heritage and so my question was well if he's got native heritage what does that mean about Native identity and how it survived in Mississippi even after the removal of Choctaws and Chickasaws. Did it survive as a kind of myth, as a vanished Indian myth? Well, no, because Mississippi Choctaws are still very much there and alive and well with thriving right. communities. Mm -hmm. Mississippi Choctaws also have a string music tradition, a fiddle playing tradition, and a square dance tradition that is not that dissimilar from white and black string music traditions in the late 19th century in Mississippi. And so when you listen to Patton's early recordings and when you listen to other recordings issued around the same time, particularly by the Chapman family and others, you start to, I think, hear a relationship between this string music and Delta Blues that comes out pretty clearly. Yeah. So I'm still trying to figure out, like, how can can you can you historically trace Mississippi Choctaw's string band music to the Delta mm -hmm. in some interesting way? Yeah. Or to the place of Patton's birth, which was Hines County, Mississippi, not far from where the Choctaws signed one of their first treaties with the United States, the Treaty of Doak Stand. Um, he was born a few miles from there. Yeah. And so, you know, Putting these kind of coincidental or puzzle, you know, puzzle pieces together is leading me down this path to start to wonder a little bit more about how Native people and African American people could have collaborated to some degree to create what we now think of as this iconic American musical genre. If you don't mind, could you talk a little bit about your research in general, kind of as a whole, and and what you what inspires you to yeah. be an academic? I uh, suppose. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my research as a whole, wow, where to start? I mean, I think my research starts with understanding the realities of Native American lived experience through questions like identity formation political nation building mm -hmm. both within native nations and as participants in building the American nation and then also felt forms of recognition like music or foodways or other kinds of things so okay. when I think of native history a lot of native history of course has been written about native people less of it by native people but the history that's been written been written about native people has often resided in the realm of federal Indian policy, for example, like what's been done to Native people. Right. And so I come from a kind of academic tradition called ethno-history that really brings an innovative way of looking at source material that's multidisciplinary. It, it relies first on anthropology and also on history to examine sources for what they are saying, for what Native people are saying in these yeah. sources. And so that method, I think, drives every other kind of question or interest that I have is like 
my my range of interests mm-hmm. are driven by this kind of fundamental method of hearing native voices in primary sources that are not necessarily written by native people. Okay. And so I look at a whole host of records with this sort of method in mind mm-hmm. um, and it generates a lot of interesting conclusions you know sometimes they're what you would expect given what we know about the history of what's been done to native people but often it generates much more nuanced uh, treatments of how native people are reacting to these policies or adapting to other local social circumstances around them and um, for me this started with documentary filmmaking so in in 1996 I made a short film about Lumbee identity. Of course, oh, wow. I'm a member of the Lumbee tribe. Okay. I made a short film about Lumbee identity that was informed by these questions. Like yeah. It was called Real Indian. And the film came out of a, you know, many years of being quizzed about my identity. Like, what are you? Or how, how can you be Indian if you have curly hair? Mm-hmm. Or there aren't any Indians in North Carolina. They all died. Or you know things like that, and being a native North Carolinian and a, like a native native North Carolinian, um, those statements from people struck me as like not just sort of ignorant, but not just ignorant of Lumbees, but ignorant of a whole world of American life yeah. that people were unaware of, you right. know. And so that little journey down do- the documentary film road exposed me to all of the things that which are. 500 plus native nations in the United States share but also especially the things that they don't necessarily share mm-hmm. so each of these communities has a distinct history has a distinct culture and a, in many ways a distinct relationship to the colonizers to the US now represented by the US federal government mm-hmm. um, so but you know Working in documentary film doesn't always allow for the kind of nuance that's really necessary when you're hoping to mitigate some of this ignorance. Right. And so I always loved reading and writing and wanted yeah. to go get a PhD because oh, okay. a PhD is the one of the few career paths, I think, that allows you to immerse yourself in text. Um, I'm thinking sort of specifically here of a humanities PhD. Yeah. But a humanities PhD allows you to immerse yourself in text. It allows, allows you to expand and ask questions about context and put those things together to come up with kind of some sometimes really novel interpretations of fundamental questions. Yeah. And so for me, the fundamental questions were what does it mean to be Lumbee? Because that's kind of the, with the water that I swim in. Yeah. But it's also, what does it mean, by, expense, by extension, what does it mean to be American Indian, but what does it mean to be American? So mm-hmm. when we really start digging into what it means to be American Indian, I think it sheds a different light on what it means to be American. And that's fast-forwarding a couple of decades. Uh, my most yeah. recent book. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get yeah. to the most recent book. The most recent book, um, The Lumbee Indians and American Struggle, is really about the relationship between Lumbee history and American history to help general readers see that American Indians have a have a strong place and deserve a greater prominence in in the defining moments of the United States. Could you for those who don't know situate the Lumbee geographically just for Sure, so the Lumbees are the largest tribe east of the Mississippi River. There's about 55,000 or so enrolled members in the tribe. Mm -hmm. 
And then we're located in southeastern North Carolina, so Robeson County, which is right on the border of South Carolina, yeah, um, as well as adjoining counties, Hoke, Scotland, Rob- um, Hoke, Scotland, Robeson, Cumberland, um, and Bladen counties are are kind of home mm-hmm. territory, yeah. strictly defined. I was born in Robeson County, but raised in Durham, okay, um, two hours away, and so have always had this kind of strong relationship to home to Robinson County but also really you know multicultural upbringing so in writing this book was there anything that kind of surprised you in the process of creating this what became the final the final product were there any twists and turns mm. that were unexpected when you de- acquire a degree of expertise in a subject matter yeah you start to believe that there's nothing new out right. there yeah. Um, but really, the what I engaged in in writing this book was a synthesis that covered a very long period of time. It covers a 300-year history of Lumbees from kind of European, I mean, not precisely European contact, but our first contacts with Europeans uh-huh. to about 2011 or so. Oh, wow, yeah. And so trying to cover 300 or more years of history means that you're the historical events and people and facts that you're uncovering have to fit together in surprising ways. My specialty has been in 20th century U.S. history and 20th century American Indian history. So going back to the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries for this book has been deeply surprising. (laughs) And I think one of the biggest conceptual surprises I had was um, how important it is to turn around the questions about where American Indian people come from. Mm-hmm. So one of the common questions that North Carolinians especially have about Lumbees is, what are, who, is who are your historic tribes? Like what historic tribes do you all um, descend from? Because oh, okay. you know the name Lumbee is something that came about as a product of federal policy making in the 1950s. And Lumbees have valued our oral tradition, which um, attaches our historic communities, meaning our the communities that predate the existence of Europeans on this Correct. continent, to particular nations within the the territory of the James between the James River, Virginia, and the PD River in South Carolina. Okay, there were hundreds of nations yeah. that existed in that territory. Right, we have forgotten their names. Mm-hmm. the vast majority of their names. Mm-hmm. We have forgotten the languages that they spoke. And we've forgotten many of the rituals, religious and otherwise, that those nations practiced. And our process of forgetting, I learned as I was writing this book, was a very typical process of what happens when colonization visits disease and warfare and slavery upon a very diverse group of people. Mm -hmm. And so American history generally teaches us that American Indians are a race of people. But in fact, of course, American Indians are a collect, are nations, are political communities. And um, before the arrival of Europeans in North Carolina, there were hundreds of these political communities. So disease, warfare, and slavery decimated these populations to this degree that the survivors began to have to move and they began to have to change and adapt their cultures to the European presence as well Mm -hmm. as to the cultures of people that previously they had maybe not had reason to 
to communicate with. Right. Um, and so that kind of coalescence resulted in what some of us think of as forgetting, but I've come to think of more as survival. Mm-hmm. And so the question, what I've learned, I think, in writing about a time period that is far outside my realm of expertise, is that the questions of origins are really way less important than the questions of survival. Mm. So we can talk a lot about what we know about where the Lumbees come from in right. terms of historic tribes. Yeah. But is that really as important as why we're still here? Yeah, right. And I think what I've come to understand in teaching this material, but also, of course, researching and writing about it, is that, yes, I want to know as much about my ancestors from four, three or four or five or a thousand years ago as I can. But really what I want to know is the about the choices those ancestors made to make sure that I'm still here now and that mm-hmm. I'm able to raise a daughter who's Lumbee yeah. and that she has a connection with her community. And so that was one of the, I think, the bigger surprises for me conceptually was to say, oh, you know what? The origins, yeah, let's go find out what we can know. But in fact, that's not as important as, as why we're still here. This is a question we ask everybody, if you have time for mm-hmm. one more. Sure. That's okay. Yeah. What's a book that changed your life? There's so many. Let's see. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, when I think about changing my life, I have to think about like which the, the which part you yeah. know which part of my life <laughs> or like where was I yeah. at when I was reading? You know, I think um, I think if I had to point to one today, and you could ask me tomorrow, and I might change my mind. That's fine. But if I had to point yeah. to one book that changed my life, it would be William Faulkner's *Sound and the Fury*. Mm. And reading that book when I was 17 or 18 helped me understand my social and political context in the South in a completely different way than I had understood it up to that point. And Faulkner's way of demonstrating through extraordinarily vivid language, but also an, an innovative and risky style of writing. Yeah. I mean, his, his style blew my mind at the mm-hmm. time and it still does I yeah. mean I reread it and I read other things by Faulkner now and I'm still just so grateful <laughs> yeah it's pretty amazing yeah to have this example but um, but I think The Sound and the Fury it's meaning at the time was it was about style but it was also and, and the ways language can be used to convey experience mm-hmm. but it was also about realizing I think the deep way in which racism and white supremacy has damaged all of our nation's citizens. He focuses on the black and white dimensions of that damage, Mm -hmm. but as an American Indian, especially in the South of the 1980s, living in a pretty much a black and white world, you know, um, you are sometimes... You just don't see yourself reflected in society. But I think Faulkner, in an interesting way, helped me see myself in the South in a completely different way than I had before. That's great. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you every time. Yeah. I I was like, I could could talk about Beloved. I could talk about... (laughs) I I read Parable of the Sower the other day. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at iah_unc. underscore UNC.